I was in my 30s and I was working for a large corporation and my career was going fairly well and I wanted to keep moving up the corporate ladder and the way ahead of me was blocked for further promotion. So I thought, well, in order to improve myself, I need to find a new job with a new company where there will be more opportunities to grow and make progress. So I started sending out resumes and my employer found out and I was fired. Now, facing a situation of unexpected unemployment never is fun. But for Julie and I, that situation was even worse because we had two very young children and she was pregnant with child number three. Plus, because of our young and busy and growing family, Julie fairly recently had left her career to become a full-time mom, so I was the only source of income for the family. Plus, at the time we were living in Southern California and our local economy was going through a recession, which meant that employers were laying off, not hiring. Needless to say, that was not a great time to be unemployed. What do you and I do when we face difficult circumstances like these or any other difficult circumstances? Well, panic always is an option, isn't it? And with the uncertainty that we faced, it would have been easy for Julie and I to yield to fear and anxiety. But we decided not to let ourselves head down that road because we realized that road leads to a dead end. And we realized that properly responding to difficult circumstances requires a balanced perspective. Because if all we can see is our problems, then it becomes very easy for those problems to overwhelm us. But if in the midst of our problems, if we can keep our eyes on God, then He can sustain us and He can show us what to do. And I'm so very glad that we chose to lean into God because I was unemployed for one full year. And that was a life-changing experience for us. And we learned that in the midst of life's challenges, the way forward is to continually remind ourselves that God is close to us, and He's watching over us, and He's greater than our circumstances. And keeping our focus on God is what enables us to face the challenges of life with hope. During that very difficult year, God met us in many ways through different parts of Scripture. But there was one part in particular that filled us with hope. Psalm 139. And that's our Bible passage today. This psalm is a majestic and heartfelt prayer written by King David of Israel, and it is a prayer about the greatness of God. And whenever you and I face situations that are beyond our control or threaten to overwhelm us, this psalm is here to give us a proper perspective. This psalm does remind us that our God is great. He is greater than any hardships or difficulties you and I ever will face. Now, as we'll see in a moment, this prayer consists of four distinct sections And each section addresses a profound question about God that demonstrates His greatness. 
And the first section helps us answer this question. How well does God know me? Let's take a look. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now, this psalm, like some of the other ones that we've looked at recently, began as a prayer, and then it was transformed into a piece of worship music for the Jewish folks. And it became a worship song, and because of that, some Bible commentators describe each of these four distinct sections as stanzas. And I kind of like that. So David opens this first stanza by marveling at the intimate connection that we all have with our Creator. God made everything, yet he's deeply knowledgeable about every human being that he created. And his personal knowledge about us and his connection with us is part of every moment of every day for our entire lives. And here's what's really wild. Based on what David says, it's a logical conclusion that God not, not only knows what we're doing, but why we're doing it. Now, this doesn't mean that he has predetermined all of our thoughts and words and actions. It just means that he knows all things. Our God has foreknowledge. He can look into the future, and therefore he knows what will happen before it happens. And he knows you, and he knows me so well that he knows what we'll think and what we'll say and what we'll do long before we ever know it. Now, if we wonder at that, we can get a glimpse of that kind of intimate personal knowledge in some various kinds of human interactions. For example, think of a husband and wife who've grown so close over the years that they can complete each other's sentences. Or I think of perhaps a pair of siblings or a set of close friends who are so closely connected that they know what the other person will likely do in any given situation. I've even seen sports announcers do this. I, I grew up as a fan of the LA Lakers and I loved listening to their phenomenal announcer back in the day, Chick Hearn. I'm dating myself a little bit here. But Chick Hearn had watched the Lakers play so many games that he often could announce in advance what a player was going to do. And I have this very vivid memory one time of watching the game, and here's what I heard and saw. Baylor passes to West. Then listen to this. West will dribble twice to his left, then shoot. Boom, boom, choo. <laughs> what Chick Hearn said would happen immediately happened the moment after he said it because he knew Jerry West so well. Now, if we as finite human beings can sometimes know things in advance about each other, then what about our infinite Creator? Of course He knows everything that will happen before it happens because He knows everything about us. 
And when we stop to consider that, then we should react as David has reacted here when he says, this knowledge about God is so high, it's so wonderful, it's basically overwhelming to realize that our God knows us that well. And so in summary then, here's the question. How well does God know you and me? He knows us better than we know ourselves. And that's just the first stanza of this incredible prayer. The second stanza addresses another vital question. How close is God to me? Let's continue on. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If, my, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Now, there's something really important happening here that we need to understand. For thousands of years, some people have embraced a view of the universe called pantheism, which is a belief that God is in everything. In other words, God exists in trees and in animals and rocks. However, that view is in conflict with what God has revealed through the Bible. God does not exist in the things of nature. The things of nature simply are created objects that reveal the power and the glory and the majesty of our Creator. What Scripture tells us in so many places and what David celebrates here in this psalm is that God is present everywhere. God is not in every thing, but He is in every place at all times. And that's why David can poetically talk about rising up to heaven and God's there. Or descending into the depths of Sheol, which for the Hebrews was the place of the dead, and and God is there. Or going across the ocean or down into the ocean, God's there. Daytime and nighttime, God's there. Which means then that God is amazingly near to you and near to me at all times. We never are alone. We never are abandoned. Because God never is absent. Now it's interesting, some people when they get a hold of that idea actually don't find it very encouraging. (laughs) Some people find the nearness of God uncomfortable or even threatening. So they try to avoid Him. And we can think of some examples. Consider Adam, the first man. After he disobeyed, what did he do? He hid. (laughs) But it didn't work. God found him because God's always near. The prophet Jonah literally tried to run away from God, but that was an exercise in futility because God always is near. 
when I think about trying to get away from God, I'm reminded of something my, my sister Karen once did. She was about four years old and she was caught in an act of willful disobedience by my dad. And as she's caught in the act, here's what she did. Here's dad, he's looking right at her, she's caught. She covers her eyes <laughs> and she turns around and she walks away. And her thought was, if I can't see dad, he can't see me, and I'll escape his justice. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, dad quickly set her straight on that. Now, we all know that what Karen did was silly. But let's be honest and admit that sometimes we act the same way toward God, don't we? We, we, we pretend that if we ignore him and don't talk to him, then he doesn't really see us and we can get away with stuff. <laughs> but we can't hide from God. Nor should we want to. He stays close to us not to judge us, but to care for us as a loving father. He stays close to us to correct us when we're wrong and set us on the right path. And that's not something we should be afraid of. It's something we should be deeply, deeply grateful for. And here's something else we need to consider. Our feelings, they are real, but they're not always a reliable indicator of truth. And all of us have had those times when we feel as if God is absent. But based on the truth of Scripture, that feeling is a lie. Whatever you and I may feel in any given moment, God is near. So we always can talk with Him. We always can lean on Him. And we always can be assured that He is close by, no matter what we feel. In summary then, how close is God to you? How close is God to me? Oh, He is closer than anyone or anything. He is never, ever apart from us. What a great God we get to call Father. Well, now we turn to the third stanza, which probes another very interesting question. How carefully has God made me? For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. When I read this passage, I was reminded of something the comedian Bob Hope said years ago when he opened his act. He said, I've been doing some reading and I learned that today my heart beat more than 103,000 times. My blood traveled 168 million miles. I breathed 23,400 times. I inhaled 438 cubic feet of air, ate 3 pounds of food, and drank 2.9 pounds of liquid. I perspired 1.43 pints of sweat. 
I gave off 85.3 degrees of heat and generated 450 tons of energy. I spoke 4,800 words, moved 750 major muscles, and exercised 7 million brain cells. Boy, am I tired. <laughs> now, behind that silly humor lies a very powerful point. The human body is amazingly constructed. And that's why David writes in this stanza about the intimate, intricate, and personal way that God formed him in the womb. In the womb. That's where life begins. But David also says something else that's rather interesting. He writes about being woven together in the depths of the earth. Now that phrase sounds strange, but David's words are a poetic expression of what's described in the book of Genesis in chapters 2 and 3. And there we read that God formed Adam, how? From the dust of the ground. And God later told Adam that after his death, he once again would be dust in the ground. But that's obviously just a reference to his physical body. Human beings are more than dust. Because Genesis also says that God breathed His Spirit into humanity and He gave us the gift of life. And so what David is doing here, he is marveling that God took ordinary physical elements and miraculously formed them into men and women who are made in God's image and likeness. Using the elements of the earth God personally knit together the complexity of your body and mine. Our tissues, our muscles, our ligaments, our nerves, our bones, the chemical reactions that take place within us. The intricacy of the human brain that we're still learning about. And within this universal biological structure that makes us all human, then God, through His Spirit, has stamped each of us with a unique personality. He has given every single human being a unique combination of traits and characteristics and talents and abilities and likes and dislikes and passions. Our God has personally and carefully and exquisitely designed all of the components that make you, you, and 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 make me, me. We are all uniquely handcrafted by God. Wow. Is our Heavenly Father great or what? Now, there's something interesting going on here in the original Hebrew text that gives us an additional insight. The word you in this stanza is emphatic and it's majestic and it's all-inclusive so the best way to translate this into English would be this way as if David is writing for you yourself alone O God knit me together in my mother's womb in other words David is saying we are not biological accidents human beings are not here by chance. God made us without any outside help. 
and He didn't create us haphazardly, and He didn't crank us out assembly line fashion. He created each of us personally and with great care, designing us and forming us to be the men and women that He wants us to be. And God's personal attention to detail is so great that He even has formed all our days and written them down ahead of time. Again, He can write them down in advance because He knows the future and He knows all things. But once again, this doesn't mean that the details of our lives are all predetermined. And that word formed there in verse 16 is an interesting one. It's rather complex in the original Hebrew and it has a range of meanings. And perhaps the best way to understand it would be with our English word ordained. Not a word we use in everyday conversation. But to be ordained means to be officially commissioned for a purpose. For example, many years ago, the elders of my home church ordained me to be a pastor. When they did that, they were setting my life apart for the purpose of ministry. But that ordination did not pre-plan every single thing I would do as a pastor. That same idea is true for every human being when it comes to the days of our lives. God has ordained my days and your days because every day has purpose and meaning. And so as handcrafted creatures made in God's image, you and I are unleashed into our ordained days to live by faith and to fulfill God's unique purposes for, for us each in our own unique ways. So to summarize this stanza, how carefully has God made us? Oh, He has made you and me with incredible care and with amazing attention to detail because He knows us intimately and He loves us intimately. And now all that David has written to this point lays the foundation for the final stanza of this very rich, worshipful prayer. This final stanza which tackles the question, how much will God guard me? Let's continue on. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. That's some pretty harsh language, isn't it? But now look at the transition here. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David begins this stanza by wanting us to know that God's care for us is so continual that He even watches over us while we're asleep. We go to bed and we awake and we find that our Heavenly Father's been on duty the entire time. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I had a deep fear of being alone and unguarded in the night. And whenever my folks would go out for the evening and they'd hire a sitter to watch over us, oh, we'd have fun and then we'd go to bed. And I'd get into bed and I would be nervous and anxious. 
because without mom and dad there, I felt unguarded, unprotected. And I just was so afraid of falling asleep while they were absent. So I would lay there awake in the bed, listening and listening. And then finally I'd hear the front door open. And I'd hear mom and dad's voice. And I'd go, they're here. I'm safe. I'm secure. I'm guarded and protected. And I could fall asleep. I wonder if any of you were like that. But you know, I've done a lot of pastoral counseling over the years and i found that it's not just children who have fears in the night. Many adults are attacked by nighttime fears. And so David's words here are relevant for people of all ages. God wants us to sleep in peace and security, remembering that we're never alone. And when we're fearful in the night, we can reach out in prayer to the God who never sleeps and we can ask Him to calm our fears so we can rest. The God who handcrafted each of us and who ordained our days never will stop guarding us. And then recognizing that God's always on duty, David wants God's protection from the enemies around him. But when he describes such people as wicked, he doesn't simply mean they're ungodly. That Hebrew word is interesting. It has the idea of emptiness. When David talks about these particular enemies, he's talking about people who have abandoned their creator. So they are not living lives of God-given meaning. These people are not embracing the purposeful days that God has ordained for them. And we see an example of this in the book of Ecclesiastes when King Solomon tries to live a life. It's kind of an experiment where he says, I'm going to see what I can do apart from God. And we read that he achieves business success and financial success and he accumulates all kinds of possessions and he enjoys a lot of alcohol and a lot of partying. And at the very end he says, oh, it's all empty. It's all meaningless. Life without God is like trying to catch the wind. And that's what David's writing about here. People who are spiritually empty because they are passionately against God. And we understand that because of the culture in which we live today. We're surrounded by some of the same kind of people. And whenever I hear someone speak out with vitriol against God, I find myself marveling at the audacity of created beings who believe they can somehow get rid of their creator simply by saying so. Well, it's no wonder then that David says that these people hate God. And they do, because their reaction to God is not benign. And what does David do? David hates them back. But is that guidance for us? Are we supposed to hate our enemies? No, because this is one of those moments when we need to interpret the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. And Jesus clearly tells us in passages such as Matthew chapter 5 that we are to love our enemies and pray for our enemies in the hopes that we might actually change their eternal destiny. Having said that though, 
We also need to grasp what David means when he uses the word hate, and it doesn't quite imply what we think it does. You see, for David, life is about taking sides, and he wants to be on God's side. And therefore, he is adamantly opposed to the enemies of God. And he does not want these spiritually empty people to entice him into ungodly behavior. And he passionately wants God to guard him from such people. However, and this is extremely important, he also asks God to guard his own heart and to reveal anything in him that will grieve the Lord. Sometimes in moments like this, I try and pull these pieces together saying, here's a piece of God's word from the Old Testament. We have some advice from the New Testament that's a little different. But there's also an insight here into David's actual understanding of what he means by hate. So what I've done is I've tried to pull all that together and see if we can come up with our own paraphrase of David's prayer and remove the hatred from his language and more overtly include this idea which I believe he implies by the use of the word hate that he just wants to be firmly on God's side and wants to be protected against God's enemies. So here's what such a prayer might look like. Lord, I'm surrounded by spiritually empty people who are against you but I want you to know that I am for you. And I do not want to yield to those people, and I don't want them to lure me away from you. So please guard me from them because they're your enemies and mine. And Father, if you could draw them to you, that would be an awesome thing. But just as importantly, please search my heart to guard me from myself to guard me from my own worst impulses because I do not ever want to grieve you. And I'm really moved by that last part of David's prayer because it reveals his honesty toward God. Sometimes when we've identified people who are enemies, all we want to do is hurl vitriol at them and attack them and malign them. But we have to be so aware of our own frailties and imperfections and sinfulness. We need God to look at us. And one of the things that we know about David when we read his life in Scripture is that he is a man after God's own heart, but he's also a highly flawed man. And he's passionately on God's side, but he also knows that he can be filled with lust and pride and selfishness that he can be guilty of attitudes and actions that fall short of God's best. The history of David's life in Scripture is that he failed more than once and sometimes failed spectacularly. And so even though he's identified people who are spiritually empty and who hate God and he wants to be protected from them, he also realizes he needs to have God look at himself. And he prays to this God who intimately formed him, this God who knows everything about him. And he says, oh, look within me. Guard me from them, Lord, and guard me from the junk in my own life so that I always can be on your side. Now, David knows, as we do, that there are circumstances in life that sometimes just happen to us. There's things that hit us out of the blue over which we have no control 
But David also knows that there's a whole lot of circumstances where our problems are self-inflicted due to our inept or foolish or ungodly behavior. And what David is letting us know here is that God is greater than our weaknesses. God is greater than David's sinful nature and your sinful nature and my sinful nature. And because David wants to be on God's side, then he wants this great God to watch over him and guard him closely. And so here in beautiful, very poetic language, the four stanzas of this psalm tell us that God knows us intimately, that God is always close by, that he carefully created each of us, and that he guards us night and day. Now, since our Heavenly Father does that for us, since this is who He is, then shouldn't we trust Him to handle all of our circumstances? I would hope so. Now, at the start of this message, I said that responding to our circumstances often is a matter of perspective, and that's what Julie and I realized when, when I became unexpectedly unemployed with a family to support. And, and so we resolved to focus on more than our unpleasant and potentially frightening situation. And we reminded ourselves regularly that God was greater than these circumstances in which we found ourselves. And as I said, Scripture was so helpful in that regard, and particularly Psalm 139. And we made, made sure that we didn't turn away from God. That even in those moments when it felt like God might not be close, we trusted that He was. We made clear to God, we're on your side. And we want to step into every purpose of the days you've ordained for us. And so we continued to live by faith as best we could. And among other things, here's what that meant. You know, when you're in the midst of a difficult situation, when you're in the midst of a crisis, it can be so easy to focus on yourself and your own very real needs. We could have easily made it all about us in that season, but we said, no, we're not going to do that. We want to continue to live by faith and live out our faith. And so we stayed very active in our local church and we invested time and effort and energy as volunteers. And we continued to invest financially in our church even though I was unemployed because we always want to be a partner in the local and global work of God's kingdom. We did all that faithfully throughout the year of unemployment. And oh yes, we prayed. We prayed. But we didn't simply just say, oh God, give me another job. I asked for employment, of course, but I also said, and so did Julie, God, what can we learn from this? You've allowed this unpleasant, unexpected circumstance to happen. Is there something you want us to know? Is there some, some larger purpose in mind? We said, Father, show us if there's something new and different you might have in store for us. Are there new and different ways we need to pray? Do we need to think outside the box? Could you show us if perhaps you want us from this point forward to live out our ordained days in a different kind of way? And you see what Julian, I believe is this, when we, when we trust that God has ordained our days, then we often pray differently about our circumstances. And in our case, this circumstance of my unemployment 
and our prayers asking God for wisdom about how to respond that laid the groundwork and set me on a course where I eventually left the marketplace and entered the ministry. And as we look back on that time, here's what occurs to us. If all we had seen was the problem as defined by us, we don't know if we would have heard God. We might have missed out on His desire to direct us in a new way. And if we'd missed out on that, could we have had good lives? Of course we could, but we would have missed out on God's richest purpose for our lives. And so in any situation, in every situation, the best thing you can, and I can do is to hold firmly on to God, trusting that He has ordained our days. And He will show us how to fill those ordained days with meaning and purpose in all of our circumstances, through all of our circumstances. Because we have the privilege of serving a great and mighty God. A God who truly is greater than any circumstance you and I ever, ever will face. Please pray with me. Father, we're grateful that you know us so very, very well. Thank you for handcrafting each of us and thank you for staying close to us and thank you that you care enough for us that you're always on duty and you do guard us through all the circumstances of life as your purposes for us unfold. And please help us to remember that our lives do have meaning and purpose as we stay connected to you. And Father, today these words from our spiritual ancestor David have reminded us that you are a great and awesome God. And so we proclaim along with him today your greatness. And we affirm that you are greater than any circumstance we ever will face. In Jesus' name, amen.